In the 12th century, an organization was founded that would go on to have immense power and riches. What sort of strange esoteric knowledge did they possess? Just how immense were the riches they gathered? And did those riches include powerful relics? And why did they seemingly disappear so quickly? On this episode, we dive deep into the murky past to try to find the Knights Templar. This is all a test. Hello and welcome to the Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke, and joining me today in the bunker is Dr. Lee Kunla. Hi, Nathan. Hello, everyone. I have a confession to make. No. Yes. Really? On our podcast? Yeah, I'm making a confession. Okay. And I'm not your making this funeral, confession. funeral, my friend. I'm not making this confession. I'm sure nobody listens to this podcast. <laughs> I'm not making this confession under duress. Okay. I'm not being tortured. No. I'm not being threatened. So this is a free and open confession. We have been doing a conspiracy podcast for five years. I think we started in 2017, didn't we? Maybe. And now it's 2024. I have two confessions. All I right. don't know what year it is. <laughs> and despite being a professor who specializes in conspiracy theories, as are you, despite someone who does countless media appearances on conspiracies and the podcast and everything, I have never read The Da Vinci Code. Neither have I. Oh, man. But we're going to talk about... But we need to talk about... We're going to talk we, about we should, stuff in we, that book. Yeah, exactly, because that book was sort of instrumental in contributing to the idea of the Knights Templar in our society. Like, for years, the Knights Templar was something that historians might have looked at in dusty old conferences. But after that book came out, and a couple other books that came out earlier that he ripped off, the Knights Templar yeah. became like a, a fundamental part of conspiracy lore. True. You're right, though, that that book brings it back into popular culture. But then the whole Indiana Jones series had touched upon it as well. True. There were other examples in popular culture. Some people actually claim that the Jedi Knights were really Templars, that that was their model, was the Templars. Huh. So, so it has been a theme in popular culture Certainly since the 70s, both in fiction, science fiction, in books, and in movies. But it goes all the way back to the 13th century, where the Templars are already fictionalized back then. All right. So we started off very pop culture heavy, and we were making references to popular movies and things. Enjoy that while it lasts. <laughs> yeah, really. Because now we're going back in time. We are going really far back in time for the uncover-up. I mean, that's one of our methods is to really try and get the beginning of the story. And often, say when we talked about 9-11, we had to go back into Afghan history in the 1800s. There's now, an episode coming up soon that takes place in the 1950s, and I'm starting it with the Book of Exodus in the Old Testament. Man, you see, you had to overshoot me, didn't you? Because I was going to make the claim that this time we're going back almost a thousand years in order to tell a story. And that is going to cause a bunch of problems on already on the face of it, because going that far back, we're going to have difficulty understanding what really happened. But before we get that far back, I want to retell an anecdote that I told on the Uncover Up Quite a few years ago, speaking of how many episodes Ooh, it's a callback. It's a callback to 
our first episode about secret societies. It provides the general template for how secret societies are imagined in the popular imagination and specifically how the Knights Templar were supposed to be running the show politically behind the scenes in Europe. Ooh, okay. I'm going to get comfortable. Get comfortable. Snuggle up to your fireplace, significant other, into your blanket with your dog or cat. Okay, here we go. On January 21st, 1793, King Louis XVI is beheaded by guillotine. This is the French Revolution, and this is a shock across Europe. Not only was the French Revolution an absolute amazing event, it was unprecedented. It brings to an end almost a thousand years of French kingship. It is something I think that we are still trying to figure out what it means today in terms of our daily politics. You know, what does it mean to say that politically everybody is equal? What does it mean to say that we should all have general human rights and a right to an education and things like that? I mean, these are values that both you and I, Nathan, agree with. Most people listening will agree with it. And yet, Liberty! Exactly. Fraternity! Egalitate! It's still something that is, is, is really what a lot of political discourse is about. How do we do it? And of course, the beheading of a king, that's one of those really symbolic moments. You don't come back from that. You yeah. know, you can't, you can't undo that kind of an right. event. You can't sew that head back on literally or metaphorically. It would be macabre if you did. And of course you would have thought of it. Now, at the moment that the king is beheaded, apparently someone in the audience yells out, Jacques de Molay, you have been avenged. Now, of course, if you haven't been with us since the beginning, you might wonder to yourself, what the heck is that guy talking about? Who's Jacques de Lamay? Who's Jacques de Lamay? Which in some accounts you will hear anglicized as James de Lamay, same character. This was the head of the Knights Templar, who in, I'm pretty sure it's 1307, who in 1307, Jacques de Lamay in 1307 is the leader of the Knights Templar. And the King of France then has him arrested, as well as many of the other Templars, has him arrested and he is killed. And so 400 years or so later, the French king is killed and someone in the audience says, okay, that earlier murder by another French king 400 years in the past has now been avenged. And the idea here being that the secret society of which Jacques de Lamay was the leader of, the Knights Templar, had been working behind the scenes to orchestrate this comeuppance, that they were the real movers and shakers behind French politics. I mean, they were playing a long game if there was ever a long game to be played. Yeah, I know that revenge is a dish best served cold, but like 400 and something years is, that's a pretty cold dish. That is icy cold. That's ice cold. It does, though, I think, speak to how we imagine and certainly how these kinds of secret societies, like in the Da Vinci Code, how we imagine they operate, that they aren't something like the CIA or even the mafia, where, yeah, okay, we understand what they do, 
we might not know all the time what it is that they're doing, but in a sense, they have a mandate and their actions are at some point revealed. Whereas with something like the Illuminati, the Knights Templar, the idea is they're really the power brokers behind the scenes. You never get to meet who they are, but all the major events in the world from the French Revolution to the Russian Revolution, World War One, Two, any of the economic collapses or economic recoveries, they're the shadow brokers who are the ones really responsible for making that happen. That's the story I want to narrate. Who were they? What were the conspiracies that they are assumed to be associated with besides just things like the French Revolution? And what do we know for sure about them? What, what kind of historical facts do we know about them? Let me begin maybe just by defining the Knights Templar. They emerge in 1119 on Christmas Day. But do they? We'll get back to that because we're going to have some problems with dates. So already you've tried to say one very simple thing and then immediately gone back on it and said, wait, no, this is kind of a problem. We're going to have to have a little chat about the sources in just a moment. But first, let me try as much as I can to define who they were. They probably emerged in 1119. They represent something new in medieval Christianity. They are warrior monks. Now, this is something if... Like Nathan and I, you grew up in the 80s watching kung fu films, might be familiar in the form of a Shaolin monk. The Knights Templar were Christian warrior monks that arise in the Latin West. That is, these are going to be another complication of how we have to talk about this stuff. They emerge in Jerusalem, but they're mostly associated with what we today would call Western Europe and potentially Catholic Christianity. They are pious, and they have a monk-like routine throughout their day. They get up monastic. Early. Thank you. A monastic routine for, for, throughout the day. They get up early. They pray. Then they pray some more. They look after their horses. They pray some more. So they're first and foremost monks, but they're fighting monks. And their goal is to protect pilgrims on the route to the Holy Land, that is to say Jerusalem and surrounding areas. Secondarily, they also protect holy sites themselves. They make sure they're not vandalized. They kind of set up sentry. They take care of them. They participated in crusades as well. We're going to have to talk about those, what they are and why they were happening. And you would recognize their uniform, which they didn't start out this way, but they get a white tunic with a red cross emblazoned on the front of it. And if you've watched even something like Monty Python... That's exactly the, where I was going to go. Yeah, you you will remember that that kind of outfit is quite stereotypical of the medieval knight. And they were poor. At least individual knights were poor. And that's who the Knights Templars were. Let me tell you a story, a very brief one, that gives a sort of sense of their, since a lot of this is French, their raison d'être. Ooh, nice. Right? Well, well said. Thank you. Why do they exist? This is a story that happens in 1019 at Easter. 700 pilgrims set out from Jerusalem to go to the River Jordan. They're unarmed men and women. 
and they're attacked. Of the 700 pilgrims, 300 are murdered outright, and some 60 are captured and sold into slavery. So that's essentially half of the people who set out from Jerusalem to go to the River Jordan are either murdered or sold into slavery. That is an unsuccessful trip. That is an unsuccessful trip, and even at the time was considered quite newsworthy and gruesome, but it's also not unusual. This kind of stuff was happening a lot, and they weren't going very far. Pilgrimages in this period of Christianity were things that you would want to do if you could. And a lot of the really important places with respect to Europe were really far away. Getting from, say, France to Jerusalem was a on foot on foot or with donkey or something like that was a perilous journey there was no international police force there was no bank and so you hop on your donkey you sew your what money you have into your clothes the money that you would need for the entire trip you'd have to you'd be laden with the money that you would need for the whole trip and note that this is not money that could be carried in a paper form because the next country over, and certainly a few countries over, is not going to recognize your king's bills. So you need to bring actual gold and silver with you. And you can imagine that there are people just waiting for these suckers, from their perspective, on the roads, at the wells, fountains, river sides, where you have to stop, wash, get, you know. I mean, it was a good time to be a mugger. Exactly. And so this kind of stuff was happening all the time. So a bunch of knights in Jerusalem who really didn't know what to do with themselves requested permission from the patriarch of Jerusalem and the king of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem at this point has been conquered by crusading forces and is now part of, again, quote-unquote, the Latin West. It has King Baldwin II, who is, I think, a Frenchman, He's in charge there. And these knights approach both the king and the patriarch, and they ask to become monks. They would like to save their souls, in their words. He's like, you know what we need more than monks right now? We need some kind of protectors. So why don't you serve God by becoming warriors of Christ, was the language that they used. So you would become monks, but you would do it in the profession in which essentially you are trained in, which is as knights, they were armed personnel, that that, that was their job, and you would save your soul that way. And so on Christmas Day of either 1018 or 1019. Maybe Christmas Day. We're pretty sure it was Christmas Day, we're, but weirdly, we don't know the year, but we're pretty sure it was Christmas Day. You have nine knights, but was it nine? We're also not sure. Oh, man. But we, 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 we are sure that some of these people were the first members to participate. Some amount of people on some day formed this group. Well, so when the Knights Templars were formed, it was a non-event. Nobody was paying attention. So nobody really thought to record we gotta it. We got to write this down. As a thing. There, In the same way, we don't know the first day that you and I podcasted together because we didn't realize we didn't realize how important that was. Thing. Exactly, it was just eh. 
future historians will be like, how, when did no. these guys start? Who knows? They'd be poring over newspapers, trying to find accounts of it. Right? and find anything. Exactly. So when they, yeah, when they were first formed, nobody thought that this was worth really taking note of in any particular way. And so nobody did. There were historians of the first crusades, but their narratives end with the fall of Jerusalem or the reconquest of Jerusalem, depending on whose perspective you're looking at. And that happens in 1099. That's 20 years before the Knights Templars are formed. And the first historian to look at the Templars, he begins his account. He starts writing about them 55 years after their formation. That's the Archbishop William of Tyre. And he is considered one of the best early sources. But problematically, he's not that good on dates. Uh. So he was con- he was a conscientious historian. He tried to get the- he tried to interview surviving members. He tried to corroborate documents with other documents. So he employed a lot of the craft of a of a modern historian. But he was also you know a little not that fussed about the dates. So that's why we're not sure. The Knights Templars then are formed as warrior monks, and their full name is the Poor Fellow Soldiers of Christ and the Temple of Solomon. The poor. Yes. Well, indeed, and we will get back to that. They become, to foreshadow it a little bit, Europe's first international bankers and are very rich as an institution. But as individual knights, they are indeed poor. And there is somebody in the order who is responsible for keeping a check on that. So in the hierarchy of the knights, there is, I think, three or four down, somebody whose main responsibility is to make sure that no knight has too much stuff. And if they do, they take it away from you. So if they see you driving around in like a Jaguar with a red big cigar. Exactly. You're lighting with a $100 bill. Exactly. Wait a second. Exactly. And when you receive gifts or when there is a plunder of a city, those actually go to this person who then redistributes it. So it's not as though you just get to keep stuff. But as we will see, this was already a worry at the time of the Templars. And as it is with any institution, is this something you're doing for the good of humanity? Or is there some self-interested motive where you want to keep your own institution going? And people were questioning at the time, are the Knights Templars doing this for the good of spreading Christianity, for the benefit of their souls and other people's souls? Or are they also doing things that are benefiting their order, keeping them moneyed, keeping them rich? A reason this is also a real bone of contention is because part of their money doesn't just come from banking and actually They're engaged in business, including the slave trade, a European-based slave trade. They make money from that. But another place that they make money from is donations from the Christian European states. And that is a double-edged sword, because if you are donating and then they mess up, you're like, well, what the what the heck is what the heck did you just spend my money on so if you were supposed to conquer a city and you don't manage to do it then people are like these these what are they they're just pocketing the money on the other hand you did always need to 
make the situation seem dire enough that they kept needing to donate money to your cause. So you, on the one hand, couldn't fail too much, but you also couldn't succeed too much because if you succeeded too much, then people were like, well, why would I want to donate money? You guys are doing fine. That sounds like modern city police departments. Yeah. Or anybody who has to like write grants or anything, right? Right. Exactly. It's like, there's a lot of crime. Well, then you're not doing your job. Well, there's not that much crime. There's enough crime that we need more money. Yeah. Now, you notice the you picked up on the poor fellow soldiers part of their name. But I want to now focus on the second part of their name, which is and of the Temple of Solomon. The Temple of Solomon. Exactly. We're getting kind of esoteric and Gnostic here then. What is going on with that name? Well, it turns out that they, as I said before, are founded in Jerusalem after the First Crusade, where Jerusalem is conquered by Western crusading forces in 1099. The Templars, for short, the poor fellow soldiers of Christ and the Temple of Solomon, which I will just refer to as either Knights Templars or just the Templars. We all appreciate that. Yeah, you're welcome. They get a place of operation, of residence. Their their first headquarters is on the Temple Mount. Now, this is a super important location. It remains today one of the most important pilgrimage sites in Islam. But back then, it was considered to be the location of both the first and second temples that are Jewish temples that are recounted in the Old Testament in the Bible. You know how the Temple of Solomon was supposed to have been built? Tell me. So Solomon had, uh, I mean, this is very quick because there's so much oddness here. Yes. The story is that Solomon had a magic ring that gave him power over demons. Okay. And he had the demons build the temple for him. Mm. It's a weird story. And then that temple is destroyed. And then a second temple is built, apparently, on the site of the first temple. All of this has to go with apparently because we're not sure where the actual sites are. Archaeology in these areas is highly restricted because they are still places, they're still considered sacred places, places of worship. And we don't we don't know if those demons were unionized, <laughs> like what kind of hours they were putting in. So the Knights Templar's headquarters are on the site, potentially, of the first and second temples recounted in the Bible. And then here already... Well, is it already? We're deep into the podcast. We get the beginnings of the myth of the Knights Templar, because the question is, among others, what did they find while rummaging around in the caverns, tunnels, and basement structures of the first two temples? Yeah, Did they find some really exciting religious relics, like maybe the Ark of the Covenant? Ooh. Did they maybe find the Holy Grail? <gasps> Did they maybe find something that was going to embarrass the church and that they have been using to blackmail the church ever since? Did they find a tremendous amount of wealth? Of course, all of these conspiratorial ideas have been woven into myths, as I said, already starting in the 1300s and really popularized today with Dan Brown, 
Indiana Jones series, the assumption is they are in possession of something or or came into possession of something. Of possibly the most famous relics in Christian history. Christian and or Jewish history. Yeah. Like the Ark being of... Old uh, Testament stuff. Exactly. There are then other conspiracies related to the Templars. Were they potentially secretly Muslims? Or were they even in association or maybe a branch of the Muslim secret society, the assassins? Were they heretics? And so that is to say that they have their own non-accepted religious interpretations together with heterodox religious practices. Were they worshipping Baphomet? Exactly. Some kind of horrifying demon figure. Yes. Another conspiracy is more far-reaching. This is that, at least from the European perspective, they were the first Europeans to discover America. Quote-unquote discover. Quote-unquote discover, because of course there were people there. And of course, the first Europeans were most likely the Vikings. You know, from the perspective of, say, the French, German, Portuguese, Spanish, who, who have no idea... That they were the first another... continental Europeans to get to what we now call America. Yes. Before Christopher Columbus. Who didn't actually get, who didn't actually get there. <laughs> so anyway, then some of the conspiracies are more prosaic in this. They actually are charged with some of these. They are charged with heresy. They're also charged with sodomy, homosexuality. So who are the Knights Templars for real then, right? On the one hand, we have a religious order of fighting monks who are there to protect pilgrims and to protect holy sites. And who did exist. And who did very much exist. And on the other hand, we have that order plus potentially powerful religious relics that have given them supernatural mystical powers. Maybe they were heretics. Maybe they were secretly of a different religion. Maybe worshipping demons and having some spectacular parties. Right. Our task, I guess, is to differentiate between which of these claims is true or not. And you might actually be surprised, as I hope our listeners often are, with the answer. Because it turns out that some of the conspiratorial claims have some basis in fact. Now, the question, of course, becomes, as we say, they are a religious order. They've been recognized by the Pope. They are under the jurisdiction directly of the Pope. They are not answerable to any secular authority. That is to say, the kings don't tell them what to do. It's the Pope that gives them the charge. They're under the protection of the Pope as well. And this is at a time when the Catholic Church is like totally dominant in what we now call Western Europe. It is. But I'm going to have to come back to that point because it is also at the beginning of what we later will recognize as the emergence of nation states. And part of the story of the Templars has to do with the fight between secular and religious authority at that time. But before we get there, I just want to emphasize this mystery of a order of fighting monks who are fabulously wealthy at least their order is, who are participating in crusades, things like this, who are under the protection of a another European international body, the Catholic Church, 
And I keep saying the Catholic Church should just intervene and mention that this is pre-Reformation Christianity in Europe. And so there is just the church. The church. Of course, there are a lot of heterodox communities, but the, the notion of Catholic as opposed to Protestant has is still a couple hundred years away. The mystery, though, with the Knights Templar is how do they just disappear? Like, it's weird. It's weird that a group of ordained, essentially ordained monks who are working for the Pope are just sort of gotten rid of. And who, that, who, not only that, who are partially responsible for the formation of the concept of the modern banking system. Who have hundreds, maybe even thousands of fortified castles who have tons of money, who are trained warrior, ascetic warriors. How do you just get rid of people like this? And sort of just in one fell swoop. It seems kind of suspicious. We do need to give a little bit of background of what's going on at the time that the Templars emerge just before and also just after. Because Yeah, I mean, you were just saying that a lot of people were critical of this idea because of the idea of the pacifism of Christianity, but this takes place during the Crusades. That's right. So the Crusades is one of the major historical events that even gives rise to the Knights Templar. And more generally, I think some of the conspiracies that are fictionalized, and of course people want to tell a good story in fiction, nonetheless rest upon certain kinds of misconceptions about what was going on back then. The world was different. I mean, you didn't need to listen to the uncover up to know that, but <laughs> what? It was The world used to be different? It's different in surprising ways. It's different, for example, that belief is really something that matters to people. Like it really matters whether you are in line with papal orthodoxy or not. This matters on the basis of whether we can be friends. It matters whether you can be a community member. Wait, that kind of sounds like now with the divisions in politics. Yeah, I wonder if it wasn't even more extreme. I'm not sure. Don't worry. We'll get, we'll get yeah, more yeah, extreme. Yeah. Wait until maybe next year or even the end of this year. I'm sure we'll get there. So very briefly. Jerusalem, what the city of Jerusalem, this is like, as I said before, a very important piece of Christian history, obviously also of Muslim and Jewish history. But because we're talking about Western Europe's Christianity, Jerusalem is, from their perspective, where a lot of the action of the Bible takes place. You want to go there on pilgrimages. You want to, quote unquote, keep it safe from non-believers that would include Muslims and Jews. If they are running that city, things have gone badly in the way that you are enacting God's will on earth. So another thing that is maybe somewhat surprising, especially for secular listeners, is that for a lot of medieval Europeans, you could see the will of God in history. So if you lost a battle, that was because you were not right with God. God didn't like your plan, didn't like your king. And so if Jerusalem wasn't being ruled by Christians, this was not a good situation. At the time of the New Testament, where a lot of the action takes place, not necessarily just when it's written, but when the action takes place, Jerusalem in that area is under the domain of the Roman Empire. 
And at that time, it's already a multicultural place. From 650 CE onwards, Jerusalem is under Muslim control. It's weird to talk about this stuff in terms of, you know, that Europe is a Christian area, and then we have Arab and Persian areas, which are referring to as Muslim. But this is very much in the kind of worldview of the people at the time. Nation states weren't a thing. There were kingdoms, but kingdoms were superseded by belief. Well, this is where, where we describe an all of Christendom. Exactly. And so when I say it was taken over by Muslims, it's taken over by various different princes and kings and rulers, and I'm not going to go into the complexity of it, but from the European Christian perspective, it's a bad situation because now infidels, heretics are, are in charge of the holy city. So there was a bunch of teams. The teams were defined by their religious beliefs, and those teams had the tendency sometimes to see other teams as being infidels because they had different beliefs. Right. And that was a bad thing. Anyway, Jerusalem is un, from 1650 onward is under non-Christian control. And this is seen as a problem in Christendom, in Western Christendom. Thank you for that concept. Now, another thing that's a problem is all these knights running around. Because basically what you have in Europe at this time is you have a whole class of armed men. This is not that far from the fall of the Roman Empire in Western Europe, where basically you have what is known as the Dark Ages. Now, that's because there wasn't a lot of writing, but it was also because Western Europe really descends into a state of barbarism where if you have a big sword, you are the ruler of your area. You know, and if somebody with more military might comes in then you know and that's where some of the royal families get their start and some of the big european dynasties and names get their start they're basically the thugs who take control after the roman empire falls sounds now, like what happens in a lot of fallen countries yeah, it, sounds warlords. Like, it sounds like what happens in afghanistan at the yeah, end of the 80s exactly just a very human thing you have chaos the warlords show up so they're still kind of around. They're a bit of a problem. They keep like fighting each other. They make a mess of things. They are having skirmishes. Europe is also divided into many more kingdoms than it is today. And they're Different always languages. They're always Europe's know. always fighting. So the Crusades structurally solve a number of problems. One, it gets rid of these stupid dudes, basically these warlords who are all fighting each other. And gives them like something to do that is not here. Right. Don't fight here each other. Right. Fight them over there. Fight them over there, by which we then also, by we And again, loot. Yes, 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 yes. Of course. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, this is, money is the Loot big. the hell out of every place. Yeah. Now, this isn't just the Christian West. I mean, the Muslim world is also interested in the looting. Caliphate? And I don't know. But they're in also, they're not just in it for you know, theology. Everybody's, I mean, the, the, the motivations are complex. But yeah, because anyway, they're people. There is a good the, uh, theological justification for reconquering, quote-unquote, Jerusalem. And and here you get to say a French word. Oh. Outre-mer. That's close enough. Which is what? What is that? What would you, how would you translate that? Outre-mer would be like the outside sphere, the... yeah. So from this is this is what the French then called 
the lands in which the Crusades take place. It's mm -hmm. sort of like abroad yeah. or far away. Yeah, the away places. Yeah. And these were the, they would actually refer to in Outremer. And this would mean, and so it roughly corresponds to what today would be southwestern Turkey, northwestern Syria, northern Lebanon, and Israel. Back in the day, they were the county of Edessa, the principality of Antioch, the county of Tripoli, and the kingdom of Jerusalem, with the kingdom of Jerusalem being the big prize. So there are eight crusades altogether. So many crusades. And basically, it is oh, over roughly around 200 years. And basically, what this is, is European knights going over into the Outremer or into these regions. The Outer and Sea. Conquering, reconquering, occupying, holding, fortifying, losing. The previous owners would fight back and then they would reconquer something. And there'd be another crusade and sometimes they would win and sometimes they would. They and would as not. you would expect in a situation like this, you have a lot of people in the middle of this who just keep getting clobbered over and over again. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, this it's is not a, a good. It's a mess. This it's is not a, a good situation. This is terrible. Now, most of then what happens in the real history of the Knights Templar over these periods, so they emerge out of the First Crusades because while Christendom has reconquered Jerusalem, it's still not a safe place and the surrounding areas are not that safe. They emerge out of this time, but now the real history is a little too tedious for us because it's like, which groups do they make alliances with and what battles do they win and when do they lose Jerusalem and when do they reconquer Jerusalem? That would be like a 100 episode podcast series. So broad strokes here, big broad strokes. Broad strokes is that they participate in a lot of these fights. Eventually the Crusades end and the Muslims are victorious and the Christians go home. And this is seen as a massive defeat. And then there are all kinds of internal struggles about why did this not work and who's at fault. But what I guess there are two things that we want to take away because two important things develop during this time. One is that the knights start to develop fortified castles. Now, these are not your palaces that you might go visit where kings luxuriate. These are big pillboxes. These are siege-resistant fortresses. And they're built along the perimeter of Outremer. So all those states that I mentioned. And their purpose is to defend Outremer, especially Jerusalem. The second thing that develops during this time, we've touched on it already, is the banking system. Now, this they're not the only people and they're probably not the first. So just like when we said that maybe they, quote unquote, discover America, but then, you know, all these caveats... It's the same thing with the banking system. I've heard of a banking system that f was first developed like 2,000 years before this takes place in Babylon. There's also, not too long after this, the goldsmiths in London. They develop sort of independently a banking system. Well, because it, it makes sense. If you have some kind of currency, mm. this is sort of a natural extension of that. You're going to come up with the idea of having banks. But what they do represent is potentially the first international European banking system. And the fortifications play a part in this. So as I said earlier, the, one of the problems is not only that you don't want to carry all your gold and silver in your pocket because you're going to get robbed, 
The other problem is that any other form of currency is not going to be recognized in other lands. Because if you had something like paper currency, or even something that's not based in gold, or potentially silver, everybody else is like, I'm sorry, what is what are three copper shekels worth? You know, right. you can't like, go to the Bureau de Change right? and be like, hey, I'd like to transfer these over. So basically what the Templars offered for pilgrims besides protection was a service where you would give them your money at the outset and they would give you a promissory note written by them with the value on it that you were to be paid back when you presented this promissory note somewhere along the way at another Templar stronghold. It's a lot easier to carry one note than it is to carry big sacks of silver and gold. Exactly. You jingle less. And your money doesn't jingle jingle at that point, it folds. Exactly. And also what's it worth to somebody else who isn't you? You know, they can't go to the castle and be like, hey, this is me and this is how much you owe me. So of course they did charge for the service. And it's as as with all the banks, it was the charge for the service that you know got them all this money. They got to be so rich that they actually are sort of functioned as a treasury for the king and for other Europeans. Like they would lend money to kings of various European countries. Now, as I say, they're doing their thing. They're relatively successful, certainly financially successful. They are wrapped up in other financial businesses. I talked about the slave trade. They were in the business of wood and wool. They got donations. They organized markets. They were fighters. They were individually poor, but as an institution, very rich. They had their headquarters on what might have been the site of you know, one of the most ancient references, architectural references in the Bible. But things don't go so well. Under Philip IV, or Philip the Fair, the leaders of the Knights Templar are rounded up suddenly one night. And it's almost like some kind of KGB operation. Friday the 13th of October 1307, the king's officers grab 2,000 members throughout France simultaneously and arrest them. It would have been so hard to coordinate something like that back then. Well, they had been working on it for months. So in fact, the decree to arrest everybody came out a month before, but it was kept secret. The operation, the kind of sting operation, had been in the works for years. So the king had infiltrated the Templars with spies who were gathering information from the inside. So on the day of the arrest, they knew. The king's forces knew where the Templars were, who they were, and how to get them. And a lot of them, because they are not currently defending Jerusalem, were unarmed. Many of them were old because of the order in 1307. It's already over 100 years old. So they, they weren't expecting have, this. They weren't expecting clearly this it. was a pretty good clandestine operation by the king. Jacques Delamay had just come to town to be a pallbearer for, the, for one of the king's relatives. He had been invited in. He thought that everything was fine. And also, and this is really important for how the story develops, 
the king has no authority over the Templars. Yeah. The Templars the Pope. answer to the Pope. They do not answer to a secular authority. And this is, again, one of the big differences between even Christian Europe today and Christian Europe back then was above the kings was the Pope. And then while the Pope didn't have his own army, he had power because he was able to excommunicate people. He was able to really force the king's hand by using other king's armies. If the Pope said no to you, you were in trouble. Also, if the Pope excommunicates you, your citizens don't want to be part of your country anymore because they're now going to go to hell. It doesn't matter anymore if they're good Christians. You are excommunicated. That means all of your territory is damned. And, and your right, your divine right to rule must be revoked revo yeah, at that point. Exactly. So these are sort of the kind of background complexities that a cursory look at the Templars. You might miss it because, of course, it was different back then. So the fact that the king arrests these Templars is a scandal. It's a scandal of the time. And the Pope is scandalized because the Pope is like, what, what are you doing? This is a clear power grab. Now, the charges in general are that, again, I'm going to spare you the complexity of medieval French law here, but there was, a, there was a loophole around heresy. And so by charging them of heresy, he was able to exert kingly authority over the matter, even though technically they worked for the Pope and they were under his jurisdiction. And the Pope was not happy with it, but nonetheless. I guess if you accuse them of heresy, then they're not really working for the Pope. Exactly. how could they be if yes. they were committing heresy? That's it. And this was a loophole that had been introduced with other heretics, the Cathars. Anyway, here are the general charges. They denied the divinity of Christ. They engaged in what was euphemistically termed illicit kissing. Ooh la la. Homosexuality. And that they used an idol, Baphomet, in their ceremonies. That's the, sort of the general charges. Specifically, they would, the, the problems were they had their meetings at night. They had to deny Christ. They had to spit, urinate, or trample on the cross. They kissed officials during the initiating ceremonies on the mouth or even other places. I leave it to your imagination. The priest would not consecrate the host. Brothers who were not priests were able to absolve each other of sins, which is a no-no, and they worshipped an idol. And so the idea was that they had somehow gotten some kind of relic and were blaspheming with it somehow. But it might have also been the head of a cat. So it was unclear exactly, again, our sources, what was meant by this, but it was not good. Mm -hmm. And it was enough to get them arrested. Now, the Templars who were arrested confessed to everything. Right. But, well, the reason they were they confessed to everything is because they were tortured. And I won't belabor it. They did lots of stuff. Medieval torture is a very inventive discipline. They, they were very good at hurting people. One torture in particular I thought was noteworthy. They would smear the soles of the victim's feet with animal fat and then put the victim's feet near fire. And of course, it would burn their feet. 
And one poor guy, and of course this comes from a contemporary report, his feet were so badly burned that his foot bones fell out. Oh, when your foot bones fall out. You're going to say stuff. I'm going to confess to whatever. I would have confessed as soon as they were lathering my feet. As with soon as fat. they, as soon as they, ha- they gave me that description, I would have said, "Oh yeah, sure. totally." I'm doing unlawful kissing all day long. All of those things. I want to keep my foot bones. The Pope, as I said, is super unhappy about this because he sees this as a power struggle. Now, this is a power struggle that is not just happening in France; it is happening throughout Europe. Kings are chafing at the authority of the Pope. They don't like that they have to second guess what they're doing or check with the Pope or get permission from the Pope. But this accounts to some extent later in England when you have King Henry VIII who's like, you know what? I'm going to just start my own church and I'm going to be the boss of that church. I want to get a divorce. I am sick of checking with – yeah, the the Pope was like, I'm sorry, you can't have a second divorce. And then King Henry was like, yeah, okay, fine. I'll start my own church. have a whole new religion then. I'll show you. But that's the kind of stuff that people were annoyed at. Like they were just annoyed at – do I get to start the war? I don't know. I got checked up with the Pope. And of course, the Pope has political interests. So where does the Pope come from? Maybe he's the second cousin of the king you want to have a war with, and then things get more complicated. So this is not just happening in France. And the Pope sees this as part of a general power struggle. So he has an emergency meeting. But he doesn't feel like he can excommunicate the king for all kinds of reasons. The Pope is in a rather precarious position. Again, I'm trying to save us like mountains of medieval history here, but the papacy is currently in Avignon. And so already it's not easy for the It's gonna be awkward. For the Pope to excommunicate a French king when right now the They're in France. They're in France. I like how you said France. They're in France. The Pope issues a bull. A bull is apparently Latin for a proclamation. And so whenever the Pope has something to say, he does it in this written form, which is known as a bull. The papal bull. You can look up papal bulls. The Vatican is full of them. Oh, yeah. The Vatican is full of papal bull, all right. He figures out a way of sort of squaring the circle because what the king has done is just an affront. And he says, all right, I'll forgive you if you give me the Templar stuff, because the king has seized all of their wealth that he is able to get. Now, of course, the Templars are operative in England, in Germany, in the Netherlands, in Outremer. Okay, so he doesn't get all of their stuff, but he gets the stuff that he can get. And the, and the Pope's like, okay, fine. If you give me the stuff, then I'll forgive you. But... The king's like, no, it's okay, we got this, and things get awkward between the pope and the king. The pope then comes up with a compromise. The first thing he does is he releases another bull in which he tells the remaining European kings to arrest the Templars. This now makes it like less like the French king is acting rogue and more like this is kind of what we wanted all along anyway. And then he sends some cardinals back to the king. So the cardinals are emissaries of the pope. And he says, all right, now you're going to give give me access to the leaders. And the king's like, fine, you can talk to them for a bit. Now, that's going to become really important. Now, what are the king's motives? Because this is, you know, what's, what's he doing? Why did he suddenly arrest the Templars who are not under secular authority? 
who seem to be doing fine. Thank you very much. Also, not a problem. Like they weren't fomenting any kind of revolution. You know, it wasn't like they were trying to take over the French kingship. Well, despite the fact that Philip IV was known as Philip the Fair, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say maybe Philip owed the Templars a lot of money. That is one of the theories, but I would put it slightly differently because the thing is that Philip has precedent doing this. He did it to the Italian merchants and he did it to the Jewish community in France. He basically just takes their stuff. More like Philip the Unfair. And this this is funnily also where France is at during the just before the French Revolution. France is essentially bankrupt because of stupid boondoggle wars that European monarchs are so good at getting themselves into. Seems on brand. That have domestic repercussions. So Philip has been in these wars, doesn't really have very much money. So he sees the money from Italian merchants. He just basically took their stuff. Then he seizes the wealth of Jewish inhabitants, who are often also at that time merchants or proto-bankers, takes their stuff, and now he does it to the Templars. So Was he one of those guys that gave himself his own nickname? Yeah, right? (laughs) Because I can't imagine who else, unless it was sarcastic. Or, I mean, your lackeys give you the nickname, right? Right. I mean, I'm sure that... Elon Musk has got all kinds of very flattering nicknames if you're in his like inner cool guy. circle. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> so money is the most plausible motive. Whether he owed it to them, I don't know. Or he just wanted it. I think he just wanted it. Yes, the Templars had lent money before. And yes, the Templars' coffers had been raided by not only the French king, but other kings. But generally then what would happen is they would be paid back. So it would be sort of a temporary kind of forceful borrowing. In this case, I think the king has precedent with others. It's not like the the Italian bankers had made some massive loan. He's just like, I want your money. And he takes it. Now, something really cool happened in 2001. We're really jumping ahead. In 2001, Barbara Fraley, a Vatican archivist, discovers what's known as the Chinon parchment. Ooh. She first publishes a paper about Chinon. this. Chinon from the place. In fact, there is a palace there. And it's because that is where the Pope talked to Demolay and the other Templars. And this parchment, there's first an article written about it in 2004, and then the Vatican releases it in 2007. In it, we discover that Jacques de Molay and the other Templars are pardoned and absolved of heresy by the Pope. Hmm. Now, here's the thing. Again, we have to remember that this is a very different time from today, and belief matters. They were primarily fighting a religious war overseas against Muslims. What would happen is if they were captured, they would have to deny the divinity of Christ. They would probably have to do some kind of ritual enactment of that denial. And so part of their initiation ceremonies actually did entail denying Christ and spinning on the cross. That actually was part of what the Knights Templars did, but they did it as a kind of a shock 
training to get you ready for the inevitable day in which you are captured and you are going to have to do this in order to survive. Now, the reason that they had to train was, again, because it mattered. And so you and I might be like, okay, fine, you just say whatever and you you get through with it. But of course- So you can if, keep your feet bones. Yes, but if you actually believe this, then it might be very difficult to denounce the divinity of Christ. So they practiced. This was actually a kind of a shock training for combat situations so that you could learn to do it in act, but not in spirit, is the way that they put it. So that part of the heresy claim is true. But See, the Pope that, that's is wild like, because, I mean, when you hear something like that, you assume, oh, they needed some dirt on these guys. They tortured them until they started to say these ridiculous things. But. No, but but the dirt was already gotten by the spies that the king had used. In, and those who infiltrated the order would have been initiated and they would have done this and they would have been like, hey, guys, look what we had to do. I mean, they're total heretics. At least you could spin it that way. So... It wasn't total nonsense. It's also true that the initiates had to kiss the master of ceremonies on the mouth, I think on the navel and on the tailbone. Now, this was then kind of embellished to say that they also kissed the buttocks or the but that didn't happen. But the idea here was you were fully under the control of the head of the order. Like if that person says you're going to kill yourself, I mean, they wouldn't. But if they said that- But if they send you on like a suicide charge- You got to do it. And you got to go on that suicide charge. And so this was another ritual enacting of that kind of who's the boss in this situation. So that was also true. But the other stuff then, the, the head of Baphomet and stuff like that, that was just totally made up. But once you, once you know that the first two are true, the rest of it kind of follows. It's also true that some of the other, you know, because this was an order and there were different heads of the different places, some of them went a little rogue with their initiation ceremonies. And that's also something that we've seen over and over again. And so some of them did turn a little brutal, but there was no worshiping of a satanic head or, you know, enforced homosexuality. In fact, the chastity and um, what's the what's the way you don't get to have sex? Abstinence. Abstinence was part of the deal. You were a monk. So after hearing this, the Pope's like, you guys are totally not guilty and absolves them, except that the Chinon parchment is not made public at the time because the Pope is still in an awkward political position. And then the Pope dies. Oh, and man. then in the move from Avignon back to the Vatican, the Chinon parchment is mislabeled and misfiled and not found again until 2001. Oh, man. So a lot of the speculations that are associated with who the Knights Templar really were are based on the fact that this religious order, very powerful knights, holed up in fortified castles with tons of money, suddenly apparently disappears. 
But in actual fact, what's happening is an immense power struggle that's happening across Europe between kings and pope. And the Knights Templar got caught in the middle because this king happened to want their money. And the pope privately sided with the Knights Templar while publicly trying to play sort of both sides of the field because he had to also protect his own political position. And with that, and the rounding up of the other knights in France, and also because of the papal bull about rounding up the knights in other places of Europe so that it sort of was not such um, an embarrassing situation, most of the Knights Templars disappear. This notion of the Knights Templar continuing to exist as this unified collective underground order is not substantiated by records of the time. Of the time, every now and then you run into one of these old dudes and they're like, yeah, I used to be a knight and now I'm a woodcutter and you know, it sucks out here. <laughs> I used in to kiss a guy in the tailbone. Interestingly, the real beneficiaries were, was not the king of France, but a sort of not really competing, but an order that existed around the same time with a lot of the same function as the Templars, and they were called Knights Hospitallers. They started out creating hospitals for pilgrims, but then they also took up arms, and they get most of the wealth of the Templars as they are disbanded in various European places. The Hospitalier. Yeah. Now, I want to briefly talk about the actual end of the Templars, because, of course, things are more complicated than it would seem. Knights are rounded up. They're either sent in France. They're either sent to monasteries. They are told to quit, and they do. Some of them don't obey, and they are thrown into prison, or they're tortured, or they're killed. Okay, fine. Now, in England, the Inquisition is not recognized. I, did, I failed to mention that this is done through the organization of the Inquisition, so there is a religious court, and they check whether you're a heretic, and then if you're a heretic, you get sent to the secular authorities who then do what they want with you. Now, in England, though, the Inquisition is not recognized. They're not down with it. The order is disbanded, but none of the members are put into prison, and their property is returned to the nobles who originally donated it, or given to the crown at large, or in some cases, somewhere else. And that's why in England, you still have a lot of the vestiges of Templar, like in the names of things. Now, this is really interesting here. In Spain and Portugal, the Templars actually don't disappear. They're just rebranded. Because they were so instrumental for the Spanish and Portuguese royal families to fight against what, from their, again, perspective was Muslim incursion, and the Knights Templars were so helpful in that, they were not cool with just kind of turning their backs on them. So they were rebranded, but in the rebranding are put under the authority of the king, no longer the pope. I want to give you one brief example of what happens in Portugal. The Knights Templar are rebranded as the Order of Christ, put under the aegis of the king who, of course, in nepotistic fashion, stuffs the head of the order with, you know, his nephew, his, his, his brother, whatever, whatever. But, 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 
An important one of these was Henry the Navigator. His dates are 1394 to 1460. And with the order's wealth, yeah, from banking and slave trading and all of this, he establishes the Navigator School. Portugal, Navigator School, 1400s. This is really the beginning now. Where does the money to fund the European Age of Exploration come from? It's Templar wealth taken on by the Portuguese crown, invested in training navigators, one of the most famous being Ferdinand Magellan, who was the first to circumnavigate the globe. Now, the connection to Christopher Columbus here is very tenuous, but the notion that from the European perspective that the Knights Templar actually discover America is less far-fetched than I made it seem at the beginning. But in a very roundabout way. Sure, in a very roundabout way, because they are still the Knights Templar, but now they're also seafarers. And if you think about it, I had this kind of light bulb go on. If you think about Portuguese ships around the 1400s, what is on their sails? That cross. Right? That Templar cross. That Templar cross. Yeah. So, Germans, on the whole, are pretty skeptical of the French motive for the French king's motive, Philip the Fair's motive for disbanding the Templars, but they also kind of go along with it. So, the end of the Templars is not as straightforward as it seems like, oh, there's Jacques de Molay burning at the stake and now they're gone. But it's also, there doesn't seem to be any indication that suddenly they turn into a really unified group who operate under, in secret, with all their hidden wealth. Because we have in the Dead Sea some Templars here. We have in England, the wealth goes back to the nobles in Spain and in Portugal. It sort of is rebranded and then secularized later. And then, of course, what makes things more complicated is that much later, other secret societies will fake their own origin story by claiming that they are actually the Knights Templar, which is what the Freemasons do. Well, this, the is, Freemasons, this is a classic move. This is a yeah, classic yeah, yeah. secret society move is that you want people to think that it goes back way further yeah. and that it has this, this connection with these almost semi-mythical groups. Yeah. We're going to see that again with the Illuminati. We're sure. going to see it over and over again with these sure. secret societies. Sure, and if it goes, it is such a such a old fashioned move. You can even see it in the Bible, where the lineages don't work if anybody has a human lifespan. Right, so like, they have to live four hundred years, yeah, five hundred, eight hundred years in order for the actual he begot him and she begot yeah. her and who all begot that. Methuselah, who begot a man named Davy Crockett. Yeah, well. Okay, I want to come back to the conspiracies, okay? Because it turns out things are more interesting here, too, than they might at first appear. Did they find a treasure under the Temple Mount? Under the Temple Mount, right? Their headquarters in Jerusalem, Temple of the Mount, maybe... Okay, personally, I'm curious what you think, Nathan. This seems like a redundant claim, because they were rich. Yeah. We know that from the banking. So I don't know if we add anything to the fact that if they found a massive treasure under the temple, what that would change in terms of the actual narrative. 
ah, here's what it would change. Mm. It depends on the nature of the treasure. Ah, well, I'm getting to the relics. Ah. No, I'm talking treasure, treasure. Oh. I'm talking like they found like giant pots of gold. No, I, I see that as metaphorical. Right. Okay. Well, fine. I mean, they, they were quite wealthy. They probably found some stuff when they were like rooting around. But I think this idea of the treasure does speak to a different idea. Right. Not a like not a physical treasure, but a treasure of perhaps some kind of secret knowledge or of relics. Relics. Well, let's go to relics. There are three relics in particular that they are thought to maybe have discovered. One, the Ark of the Covenant which is supposed to be an incredibly powerful object, at least in biblical lore. That's the box after Moses gets the Ten Commandments and then he smashes the stones. Those stones are put into the Ark of the Covenant. And it is kept in the Holy of Holies. It is like in the inner sanctuary of the temple, and only very special people can go anywhere near it because it's so powerful that if the uninitiated try and get anywhere close to it, they will just die. Yes, in fact, in the Bible, when the Philistines steal the Ark of the Covenant, they are smote with mice and hemorrhoids. Right. And then they have to create golden mice and golden hemorrhoids and put those in the Ark and then return it. I don't remember that passage. Okay. Quite a passage. So maybe they find that. Maybe they find the cup, the Holy Grail, which is the cup that uh, Jesus drank of. And of course, anything. Or perhaps caught his blood after he was stabbed. Right. Anything associated with Jesus like that is going to be super important. The third one is the Shroud of Turin, which is the burial, uh, at least attributed to being the burial cloth of Jesus, after he is taken down from the cross, he's wrapped in a burial shroud and then brought into the tomb. Now, I have to put our prejudices on the table, prejudices on the table, and say that even if they found the cup or the ark, I don't believe that this bestows any particular power on them to, say, rule the world or have undue influence. And so... I have not come up with any credible evidence that they found either of those. The Ark disappears. So archaeologically, we don't know where it is. In the Bible, it disappears. So it, 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 it's, it's lost. The cup is a medieval invention. Yeah, it's the, not in the Bible. It's not even in the Bible. And it, it's one of these inventions that is operative around the time of the Templars and really plays into this knightly myth. And I think it is... Spielberg in Indiana Jones, who has the knights being the guardians of the of the Holy Grail. This and it is grants all, immortality. Exactly. So, I mean, look, if we're going to put those kinds of things on the table, like ultimate power through religious object or immortality and stuff like that, you know, we've left the realm of kind of evidence-based analysis that we're trying to do. We don't have any evidence that they had found either of those. And if they had, that it would give them any power. But ah. turns out they probably had the Shroud of Turin. Huh? Yeah, like legit. Again, Barbara Fraley in 2009, she discovers another mislabeled and, you know, weirdly archived document about an initiate into the Templars. In, I think, the, oh, 1287, I have the the date, where he is brought into a secret chamber where 
there is a shroud with the image of a man on it, and he is to kiss the feet of it. And Michael Hogg, who I've referenced a couple of times, suggests that the Templars probably were in possession of what we today would call the Shroud of Turin. Well, because the Shroud of Turin, whether or not it is legitimately the cloth that was placed over Jesus, there is something that we call the Shroud of Turin. And 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 people like pilgrimage to it, and they, and of course, there's been a lot of analysis done of it that said, well, no, this is probably not authentic. Yeah, but it does exist, and it's a, if it's a forgery, it's a pretty old forgery. Yeah, and they, well, it goes at least to twelve eighty seven. So they and they looks like they had it. Huh. So here's in summary what we can say about the Knights Templar. They were a real order. They had, for a while, fabulous wealth. They did have some important religious relics. They were charged, plausibly almost, with heretical acts. They were sometimes even, and I had to skip over this in my discussion of it, they were sometimes, quote-unquote, in league with Muslims, Sometimes it actually made sense for some factions to team up against another faction. Yeah. And sometimes that meant that you were fighting with Muslims against potentially some other sure. Muslims. And they were disbanded suddenly, probably quite unjustly. And that's what we know about them. I personally don't see here any indication that they then, through fabulous wealth, with or without super powerful mystical relics turn into a world organizing secret society that is then able to shape world events in the long game such that the French Revolution emerges and they get their own back 400 years later by killing then King Louis the 16th or creating the first world war or crashing the stock market in 87 or rigging but, the Super Bowl in 2024 but even even kind of, they they do, as Umberto Eco says in Foucault's Pendulum, everything has something to do with the Templars. Their, their, their reach is further than I first thought, you know, when they become institutionalized in the Order of Christ, and this funds the beginning of the European Age of Exploration. There is something to some of the claims, but of course not always in the way that pop culture or a very hard conspiracist worldview would have you believe. 